0: You know, you play little league baseball and there'd be three corkies on two teams, you know, so it'd be so everybody's name.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it was the the new John back then. Yeah. yeah. It really everybody was. says corky, everybody looks up. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome back. It's episode 216 of Bourbon Pursuit. I'm Kenny, and we've got some news to run through. And we've got some exciting news that's coming from Old Forester. Their 1910 Old Fine Whiskey. We talked about it on the show with Jackie Zykin before, and it exceeded the expectations that Old Forester ever would have known about. It was their fourth and final expression of the Old Forester's Whiskey Row series, and it had sold out across the nation. But it's now being announced that it'll be back on shelves at the end of the month. You know, the idea of pairing bourbon and food and even infusing bourbon and food is nothing new, but some might wonder, have we gone too far? Well, the commercialization of bourbon continues as Denny's, you know, that place with moons over Miami, is announcing a new bourbon themed menu for fall. It's called Big Bourbon Flavors. The menu features a range of bourbon inspired dishes to enjoy throughout the day. So for breakfast, you've got the apple bourbon pancake breakfast that has two flaxseed multi-grain pancakes with a caramel apple walnut bourbon sauce. And for lunch and dinner, you've got two classic bourbon dishes, the bourbon bacon burger, which is topped with a bourbon sauce. And then you've got the bourbon chicken sizzling skillet, which sees a grilled chicken breast coated in a bourbon glaze. And as with any rare bourbon release, this is a limited time offer, and you can read more about this with a link to vinepair.com in our show notes. What's the sweet spot for bourbon's age? You know, if you follow along with the podcast, you would know after hearing all kinds of master distillers and master blenders that age isn't everything. And heck, we know that when we go on barrel picks. And we have this notion that higher age is better, but there's a reason why you're going to end up seeing barrels of Stuff that has been rejected for Elijah Craig 23 that just gets dumped into standard Evan Williams tanks. And there's a new article by Winemag.com that interviewed Four Roses master distiller Brent Elliott about that sweet spot. And Brett said that the majority of barrels peak in around the five to 10 year range. And in this range is when all the immature character of the white dog is gone, and there's a light and bright and delicate balance of the flavors from the grains and the fermentation that have developed in the barrel and with the barrel to create that perfect balance. And beyond the 12 year ranges, we're gonna start seeing fewer and fewer of those actually quote unquote improving each year. You can read more about bourbon, rum, scotch, and Armagnac sweet spots, which surprisingly Armagnac was at 50 years old, with the article from WineMag in our show notes. Do you have an old dusty bottle still sitting on the shelf? And more importantly, have you opened it? Well, I guess this kind of goes for any bottle of bourbon that you have open and you're now wondering, how long do I have to drink this before it goes bad or maybe just changes completely? According to researchers at Bacardi, they presented their findings at the annual Tales of the Cocktail convention in New Orleans, and everyday factors such as temperature fluctuations, light exposure, and oxidation can lead to rapid spirit degradation, and this can pretty severely alter both the color and the flavor of alcohol stored in glass bottles. Bacardi flavor scientists conducted a series of experiments on the effects of temperature fluctuations on its rum and found that temperature changes can degrade an organic molecule called terpene. And this alters the flavor of the alcohol, too. By exposing various glass bottles stored to UV radiation, it actually intended to try to simulate the effects of sunlight. And researchers found that over a period of 10 days of exposure, bourbon lost 10% of its color, while scotch lost 40%. But color is never just color. When it comes to alcohol, color changes are indicative of flavor changes too. And researchers concluded that whiskey has an almost indefinite shelf life if you leave it unopened and stored in a cool space. However, once you open it, the rules of the game start changing. In order to best protect the flavor profile from oxidation, If you have a bottle that is less than half, you should drink it within a year. And if you have less than a quarter of a bottle left, you have about three to four months before it starts to get questionable. You can read the entire article from bustle.com in our show notes. Are you a Patreon supporter of ours? Well, we had recently launched a new Discord server where everybody can come and chat daily in real time. There's a lot of talk going on about the podcast on a daily basis. And for me, seriously, it's almost hourly because I'm giving updates of what's coming in through email and other kind of news that we necessarily don't always talk about on the podcast, but there's just loads of bourbon talk. So come connect your Discord account to your Patreon account and you can join in the fun with us. Now for today's podcast, You know, we look back and Peerless has just been a fun distillery to watch. When they first launched their two-year rye at $100 or more across the country, it had some major pushback from whiskey geeks, you know, until they tried it. It gets better and better every single year. And this whiskey is just one aspect of the story because Corky, talks a lot about how they rebuilt this brand. It's just a fantastic story to hear. It's always appealing to hear kind of how someone fights hard to restore history by fighting to get their original DSP. And no expense was spared when it's actually coming to the bottling and really what the end result of their whiskey is. So this is gonna be a fun distillery to watch as they grow. And if you didn't know, they just released their first bourbon to the world at four years old. All right, now here we go. Let's get in a quick word from Fred Minnick with Above the Char.
2: I'm Fred Minnick, and this is Above the Char. I'm going to say this now and repeat it a lot in this episode. Do not market to children if you're an alcohol brand. Now, with that said, we live in this beautiful bourbon lifestyle, and sometimes friends by friends baby gifts that have bourbon logos on it. Let me give you an example. A few weeks ago, a good friend brought me a baby bib with a distillery logo on it. It was for my then seven-month-old son, and it was quite cute, and I really appreciated it. It It was lovely. My wife laughed about it. Even my son thought it was cute. But I didn't really think anything of it from a marketing perspective because my friend actually made it. This was not created by the distillery. My friend made this special embroidered Baby Bib. And then I started reviewing some cigarette testimony from the 1990s. You know, that's what I do. I like reading old transcripts and lawsuits to find nuggets of history and factual information. Well, this was a time when the anti-smoker leagues were really dissecting the tobacco industry for having billboards near schools and creating cartoon characters as the mascots for tobacco. Now, the alcohol industry has always done a very good job of avoiding this, you know, marketing to children, and they've really enforced that heavily within the trade. But in recent years, whiskey fans have actually gifted one another bourbon-related things to celebrate newborns and even make, you know, children t-shirts with whiskey logos. For the most part, these are innocent homemade gifts from one friend to another. When a friend has a kid, the natural instinct is to buy that friend a gift. And if your friend is a bourbon fan, you might be inclined to buy or create a bourbon onesie. We may like it and think it's cute, but the rest of the world could see it as marketing bourbon to a child, which is very bad. You see, we are in this weird place in our society with how we perceive alcohol. Many of us look at bourbon as the great bourbon lifestyle and our children see our bottles all the time and hear us talking about master distillers. So for this audience, you and I, getting a bourbon baby bib is one of the greatest, most thoughtful gifts you could possibly imagine. But this is potentially a very slippery slope. If the wrong person sees my son wearing that bib, they may think it's from a brand and report it to the federal authorities. It could lead to an investigation and severe consequences in social media circles, which are already cracking down on alcohol and tobacco related posts. After all, advocacy groups will go to the ends of the earth to protect children, and they absolutely should. Again, do not market to children at all, especially if you are a bourbon-related brand. And nobody wants to market to children in this industry. Nobody. So as we give to our friends in celebration of their children, just be cognizant of what it might look like to an outsider. And while bourbon is a long way from Joe Camel, we don't want to portray our lifestyle in the wrong light. And that's this week's Above the Char. Hey, did you know I have a second edition of my book, Bourbon Curious, coming out soon? You can find it on Amazon and Barnes & Noble. Search Bourbon Curious. Again, that's Bourbon Curious. Until next week, cheers.
1: You can order online at Sealbox or the thebourbonconcierge.com, and you can even purchase in person at Revival Vintage Spirits, and even now with very few select stores in Kentucky. You can get it now while you can, but be sure to do it because it's not going to last long. From their bar to yours, Chad and Sarah of the popular YouTube channel It's Bourbon Night bring you their favorite at-home old-fashioned mix with the new Elemental Elixir's Golden Hour Syrup. It's a custom-made syrup with notes of bold black tea Welcome back to another episode of Bourbon Pursuit. And here we are the second time at Down One Bourbon Bar doing our live streaming podcast. So, happy monday to everybody that's out there uh you know hopefully we're, <clears> we're starting to shake things up to to start the beginning of the week because uh not a lot of news kind of happens on mondays so yeah especially after spring break you know everybody's oh, yeah. like it's the wall
3: everybody's having a case of the mondays today you know it's <laughs> like uh, i don't want to do anything but everybody, com- everybody comes back looking super tan though oh uh, no yeah not me i, I still got uh, white farmers tan <laughs> <laughs> you, you don't tan do you corgi uh,
0: i do if i'm in the sun I'm, yeah i need, <laughs> I need I to be you. there more
3: yeah well, yeah, this is our room now. You know, the Kenny and Ryan, uh, this is our studio. so It is. It's, it's
1: slowly turning into that. We got the uh, the phones are going off the hook, if you, anybody can hear them. So, yep. it's good. We I got mean, a telethon going. Yeah. You know, so Calling for your support. Yeah, 188-Bourbon. We'll take your questions live. Um, actually, that's not a real number. Please don't call. <laughs> yep. But, you know, today is going to be a, a pretty fun and interesting episode because we are sitting here with Corky Taylor. Corky is the uh, chairperson, uh, CEO as well of of, of uh, Peerless, distilling stealing company. Uh, you know, this is something that, you know, honestly, for us, it had taken a while for Peerless to kind of get on the map for us, even though it was kind of in our, our backyard. We, we all the time, we have people that say, oh, we want to get on the podcast, we can get on the podcast, but they don't really hit uh, a national awareness. And I think it, it's time now that Peerless has, has started to break that ground and they are starting to kind of uh, venture out in the way and make themselves a, a nationally recognized brand at this point.
3: Yeah. And internationally as well. I was just talking to uh, Cordell, my good friend, uh, Cordy, uh, before the the show. And he was telling us, tell me that how Peerless is now in 45 states. And it just won like, uh, I think the British crap producer of the year and and globally, so I mean that's pretty big stuff, you know, coming out of you know Peerless. So I'm I'm super excited. Me and Kenny actually, Corky probably don't remember. We came there last year for my birthday. Mm-hmm. We had a group of ten, and you. Gave uh, a great tour. It was actually uh, a
1: Pursuit Undercover
3: Volume One. Yep. yep. Oh, yeah. <laughs> exactly. We were we were behind the scenes. I brought my own whiskey thief, and uh, you know, you no, know, it was it was a lot of fun. It's a very cool place if no one's been to it. But excited to uh, revisit the story and share with our audience. You know. Corky's background and the whole Peerless brand and what they're doing to make their name in the
1: whiskey game. Absolutely. So I guess we should we should probably introduce our guest. So today we do have uh, Corky. He is the chairman and the CEO of Peerless Sealing Company. So Corky, uh, aloha, right? Because yeah, there you. Go. I, yeah. That was one thing that I learned from you at the last Legend Series is that you grew up in Hawaii. I did.
0: My father was in the military, so we spent. I spent the first. Uh, eight and a half, nine years growing up in Hawaii. My dad was stationed over there. So actually, at one time lived right on Waikiki Beach. So uh, surfed on Waikiki Beach. and then we moved to Schofield and Shafter. So, and then uh, when I was older, I surfed. Was uh, that a huge letdown? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <You can go laughs> it was. Hawaii. Because yeah, I it's, went it's, straight from Hawaii to, to military school down in Lebanon, Tennessee. <laughs> oh, so that yeah. was a major letdown. Yeah. <laughs> but um, no, I used to surf the North Shore, Sunset Beach, where the big, I, I wasn't surfing the 25 foot waves, but I was still surf in the 10 foot waves. So, mm-hmm. but uh, then I, and our family moved back to my dad's hometown, of Henderson, Kentucky.
1: Well, what what can you give us a time frame of that? Like when you were growing up in Hawaii, like what age what age range was this?
0: I was about uh, five years old when we moved to Hawaii. My brother was actually born in Hawaii on Maui. Uh, then we moved back when I was thirteen years old to Henderson. So. 13, 14, right in there.
1: Was he given, uh, when your brother was born, was he given like a, an official like Hawaiian name that you didn't get because you no, were kind of he an was, immigrant? No, he, he?
0: he was actually named after my great-grandfather. He's not Hawaiian? <laughs>
3: Polynesian? <laughs> that, 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 uh, that sounds yeah.
1: Polynesian to me. Here we go.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, uh, no he, he was named after actually my great-grandfather that started Peerless. So he was he was Henry. They called it. We called him Hank, but he was Henry, named after my great grandfather. So,
1: well, we cool. kind of talk about your name a little bit too. So Corky Taylor, and this is the name Corky because it is a little bit different, right? So kind of how did this name evolve, or what does it come from? And I'm gonna just guess it's not your actual given name, or no, is it's not. It, no, you know,
0: okay. no, I'm I'm Roy M. Taylor the third. Of course, my grandfather was you know always Roy. My dad. Was Roy too until and then General Patton named my father Ace, so he went by Ace his, you know, the whole time I I was with him and then uh, since they, they they didn't really want to call me Roy, so I I I got the name Corky day one. So the only time I was ever named Roy was first day of school. So they'd say Roy Taylor and I'd kind of raise my <laughs> hand up, you know, no, it's Corky. So that was. I, I could go another year by Corky, so <laughs> okay. it's.
1: I've always gone by Corky. That's like it's not too bad. It was I, a
0: good. It was a military name. I mean, there was a lot of corkies. Something about it. I don't. I don't know, but I had. I had. I played. Do you get to earn it. That name, or no, not really. It, you know, so it was. Uh, you know, you play little league baseball, and there'd be three corkies on two teams. You know, so it'd be.
1: So everybody's name. <laughs> it was the the new John back then. Yeah, he yeah. really. Is. Everybody says Corgi. Everybody looks up. <laughs> yeah. <you know>. <laughs> <laughs> well, good. So I kind of want to kick it off and and start talking a little bit about the story and the history of Peerless. So okay. before we talk about the whiskey and the bourbon that you're producing now, kind of give the story of of your family and how this really evolved.
0: Okay, how it, how it evolved was obviously through my great grandfather. Um, he was. He was born in Poland. He was a Polish Jew. He moved to New York City to Manhattan when he was five years old. He was selling papers on the corner when he was seven, eight, 10, 12 years old. And when he was, he saved up some money when, when he was 19, he said, I'm going to get on a riverboat. And when I run out of money, that's where I'm going to get off. Why he didn't get off in Louisville, Kentucky, I have no idea. He got (laughs) off in Henderson, which was a good thing. Walked up top of the hill, had zero money. And he asked the bar, up there called Puckett's, can I sweep the floor and can I live in the attic until I get get myself squared away? And about two years later, he ended up buying the bar. But what he really wanted to be was a banker, and that's what he was. He uh, went from Henderson to St. Louis for a short period of time because there was a lot of Jewish people from St. Louis, so they kind of took him under his wing. He became a banker and moved back to Henderson, opened First National Bank, uh, and in 1889, he bought a small distillery from the Worsham family. Mr. Worsham had passed away. He bought the distillery. They were making about eight barrels of bourbon a day. And within two years, he was—he had some weeks he was making 200 barrels a week. So he took it to a pretty good—at um, one time, he was probably— there were 220 distilleries in the state of Kentucky. He was probably in the top— five or ten during that era. Do
3: you think uh, he looked at it as a purely investment, or was it, like, a, something they enjoyed?
0: No, I think he looked at it as an investment. Yeah. I, I think he was pretty money-driven. Uh, he built one of the largest breweries outside of the Mississippi, the Henderson Brewing Company, and the way he distributed his beer during that era was all by riverboat. So he had his own riverboats and went to Cincinnati, to Louisville, down to St. Louis, and he built that into a pretty good-sized uh, brewery but his love was Chicago. That's where all his buddies were. You couldn't do this today, but back then he sat on the board of five different banks up in Chicago, but he owned the Palmer House up in Chicago. It's probably one of the most famous, some people have never heard of it, but it's the longest running hotel in the United States. First hotel to have a light bulb, telephone, elevator, dishwasher, and air conditioning.
3: No iPhone, not the first
1: iPhone. No iPhone, iPhone's
0: next to the bed. No, I think it's, but, but they invented the brownie, so that's what they were famous for. Okay, so, I like yeah. brownies. Yeah, we can yeah. do
1: that. So I guess kind of help me through the the timetable here. Now, was your great was great great or great grandfather? Great grandfather. Okay, so was this uh, lost during prohibition or like it was? Of, okay, so yeah. kind of talk about like he, how that that sort of uh, he had
0: snowballed. it. He had it up till prohibition, and he had about sixty three thousand barrels of bourbon he had to get rid of. He was hiding, if you can hide, 50,000 of them in Owensboro because they had huge warehouses, some big distilleries in, in Owensboro, and they had big fences with ivy on them. So he was able to hide a lot of barrels. And it took him about three years to get licenses to distribute alcohol during Prohibition.
1: So um, so nobody was coming there day one trying to bring Axum out the hammers? Yeah, and oh, like, I Axum think Open. they
0: probably were. I mean, all his— the distillery in Henderson was pretty wide open, and that's the reason why he would sneak at night over on 17 train cars to Owensboro to, to, to keep barrels over there and keep them hidden. So the government, you're right, would have gone in there with axes, cracked mm-hmm. them open, poured them out. So he thought that he could get a license eventually, and it took him about three years to do so. So then he got a license and was able to distribute, um, where he distributed a lot of his alcohol, and we found this out uh, Rocky Wurtz up in um, in Chicago, it's Wurtz Distributing now. It's Breakthrough, but they were the. Um, um, it was a. I guess he he knew about my great grandfather, and before I got up there, he 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 told us that my great grandfather sold the Walgreen. Everybody's familiar with Walgreens; uh-huh. got one on every corner, right? Uh-huh. But he sold them a little less than forty thousand barrels of bourbon during Prohibition, which was a big deal back then. So they partied pretty hard in the Palmer House for for (laughs) years, not... This wasn't one of these two week parties. This went on for like ten or twelve years during Prohibition, but he was able to get rid of all his then he shut the distillery down. He shut it down before that.
1: So it was more like right. a like a liquidation sort of thing is what he was trying to get out of it.
0: Yeah, he was he he'd already sold his stills in, in nineteen seventeen, Prohibition came along in nineteen nineteen. So he must have known something was coming on. So in nineteen seventeen he sold his stills to United Distillery up in Vancouver, British Columbia. Um, And what he did, he hired Mr. Sherman here in town that owns Vendome. Mm -hmm. They're the largest steel builder in the United States, probably the world. Hired Mr. Sherman, brought his family to Henderson, his wife and four kids. Stayed there eight months, broke them down, went up to Vancouver, about a month on the train, set them up. Spent eight months up there, came back here, and that's where they got some of the money to, to continue and to build Vendome with. So huh. I went in there, ninety eight years later, and they told me it was your great grandfather that helped put our great grandfather in business.
1: So they were like, "Well, you need to still." So we're going to go ahead and just bump you up near towards the front of the line. This is this is your repayment.
0: <laughs> that wasn't really it. No, no.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so talk about the the idea now. Um, you know the. The family legacy of of distilling and having your own whiskey had been lost for a few generations, and and now you were at the point of just saying like, "Ah, screw it, like let's let's start making whiskey again. Like, what was that? What was that real determining factor that wanted you to start? pushing towards that. Because he had a legitimate story. Yeah, yeah. He's, he's had, oh, most, most I, people are like,
3: my great-grandpa, and you're like, you're not even related to him. <laughs> yeah, well, it's, <laughs> it's not even close.
0: Now, exactly. I'll tell you what, I, I had a big company, and I had a financial services company. I sold it to a group out of New York, 50th floor Rockefeller Center. I walked on the beach in Sarasota, Florida for a year and a half, most depressed I've ever been in my life. <laughs> I said, I've got to go back to work. So I came back, I had a home here in Louisville, And my youngest son, Carson, was a builder, and I said, let's let's do something. I don't care what we do. Let's do something. So we had a lot of history with my great-grandfather and my grandfather running the distillery. So we said, let's build a distillery. We went down to Vendome and walked through the door, and said, we want to order a still and started looking for buildings here in town. And Carson was a builder, so we found this building down on 10th Street that kind of lent itself to do what we wanted to do. And... Um, ordered distills, and he started the building. <laughs> Took us almost two years to the day to to build the building or to convert the building to a distillery. And um,
3: why'd you choose we, that building in that location?
0: Well, I just felt like that if I got the building, and maybe when our bourbon came out in six to seven years, part of Louisville would be heading that direction. It was pretty pretty much gone. New Louis great, but there's not many places left in that end of town. So I thought in six, seven, eight years, Louisville would be heading that direction. So it was in a it, kind of a rough area then. It's starting to get better as we go along. And mm-hmm. when we get the park built down on the river, it'll be better yet. But I just thought it would it would work out, and it had a loading dock. It was about the right size we wanted, so it's worked out. I think it's worked out very well for us.
1: Why it's not Upsart? Uh, oh, well, no, no, I was about to say. I mean, do you see that as more of like a, like Louisville's having a, a renaissance period because you had a choice you you could you could have um, gone to Bardstown, you could have gone back to your hometown. Well, that's what I was, was going to say. Why not Shut- Why not Owensboro? Because you
3: know OZ Tyler's making a great name for themselves. Sure, they up are. There, uh, yeah, well, Henderson. Cool Henderson's my
0: hometown. I mean, that's you know, I feel like that's where everything started in Henderson. But I felt like that um, I I like Louisville. I knew Louisville was coming along with the bourbon uh, renaissance with bourbonism and what was going on. And that was even being talked about four or five years ago. So I felt like, you know, with Brown Forman being here and, you know, just a lot of things going on in downtown Louisville, I just felt like that I'd go ahead and take the chance. And in Five, six, seven years, it would kind of head our direction. I'm not too far off. I mean, a lot of it has to do with luck. You know, you have to have a lot of luck doing it. But um, as luck would have it, I think that we're in the right place at the right time. Um, and we made a decision that we're making our own product. I don't source anything at all. So I knew our bourbon's not even out. It won't be out till June 22nd. So we're actually, you know, waiting a little bit over four years for it to come out. I'm holding off. I could bring it out today if I wanted to, but I'm bringing it out on my dad's birthday. That's the only generation we skipped. We skipped the third generation. I'm the fourth, obviously Carson's the fifth. So in honor of my father, I'm bringing it out on his birthday.
1: Very cool. So, I mean, back to the Louisville thing, I'm assuming that yours. Uh, I mean, you're going to pay a little bit more money up front to actually sit here and have your home base and being headquartered in Louisville, then then trying to go and you know be in Owensboro or be in Bardstown or something like that. You know, did you look at this and saying, you know, this is this is where the population is going to grow, this is where uh, the tourism is going to expand. We're going to we don't have to convince people to come like we're already just like another dot on the map of of the Louisville Bourbon kind of experience, if you will.
0: Absolutely. I mean, with the convention center. Right here, I mean, you know, you know what's going on here with the, you know, the farm machinery shows. The the big shows are here in Louisville, the convention center. At that time, I didn't know it was going to be torn down and start all over, but that's okay. We got through that two years, so did everybody else. But during that era, they were building like an unbelievable amount of hotels in this town. I think when I started, they were building like 10 hotels and then it'd come another couple of years and then there's 20 new hotels. So those people are going to do something. They're going to go places. And I wanted to be in Louisville so people could come in and take a tour of our distillery and, and know the family, the history, because I, I really believe we have about as much history in the bourbon industry as any distillery in the whole state of Kentucky. And it might be a might be saying a mouthful, but I mean, <laughs>
1: when you go back, Fred to, No's going to have, you know, have a response to that when one. You, <laughs> well, who's that? It's Fred, a Fred no, no or any well, of the beams? <laughs>
0: well, okay. Well, Jim Beam is not, is DSP number two thirty. We're number fifty. So, oh, so,
1: I want you to I want you to also tell that story too, because I know that you were you also fought to have your your original DSP back as well.
0: Oh, fought fought. that not the word for it. I spent <laughs> I I spent a year and a half getting that, that number back. I mean, we started from my great grandfather. I can't tell you how many attorneys in this town I went through and and what we had to do to get that, but I was bound and determined that we had DSP number 50. Um, it took us a year and a half to get, almost to the day, a year and a half to get that number. First time in history the government's ever gone back to give a DSP number back to a family. So uh, we were able to, to get it and um, I finally, I called the fellow when when, it, when we got it, and I said, okay, what would my number have been if I would just filled the paperwork out the way you wanted me to? 20,232. I said, 50 looks better up on the <laughs> yeah. building. That's hard to market you know, that. So, <laughs>
3: and they're like, I have all this history, but we're DSP 20,000. we like, yeah,
1: right. Good, yeah. good call.
0: <laughs> so the new numbers are in the 22,000s. Yeah. You know, and there's a number of them in this town that are 22,000. So... Um, no i mean when you mentioned jim beam they're 230 we're 50. when you mentioned uh, buffalo they're 113. wild turkey's 139. makers is 444. i know them all so number 50 is a big deal it doesn't it's not such a big deal sometimes in the united states when we do tours down there okay we're number 50 but you bring somebody in there from japan you bring them in from scotland from ireland and they see number 50 their eyes light up it's yeah. like oh my gosh you have got to have a lot of history with your family to have DSP number 50.
1: when you're going through that process at any point where you just like this is this is too much because yeah. we've we've dealt with Ttb we've dealt with the laws we've we've gone through and I don't even know if they know all the laws and all the restrictions so at some point mm-hmm. did you ever think like let's just give it up it's gonna it's gonna take yeah. way too long to get this 50 back
0: you know I did but you have to keep in mind we were going through the construction era that time we were we started and it took exactly two years to go through it so I started that process even before we started when we first bought the building then we had to get something we had to get permits you know that takes time to do so i was i was working on 50 from day one so um yeah i i, I just felt like that I'd finally get it Mm-hmm. So and we
1: had, perseverance. Yeah,
0: yeah. So we. I never really, you know, I. It, it, I, I just thought I'd get
3: it. <laughs> <laughs> so you're a financial guy. Uh, so like, when you're looking at a bur you know, starting a distillery and, and the investment it takes and the return on investment and like, like, were you like, this is this is like, horrible, what was your mindset horrible going into this? Like, yeah, I know you wanted to bring your family's history back and like do yeah. all that, but uh talk about. Pulling those triggers, like even though your brain's probably like, this doesn't make much sense, like.
0: No, it did. you know when I first we weren't going to be, and we're not we're not that big today. We're we're a small distillery, but when when Carson and I got into that, we were thinking along the lines of a smaller, about half the size we are. But then I guess my financial background kicked in, and I started figuring, you know, I've got to do X amount to make this many barrels to make this many bottles to be in this many states this is what we need to, to be and then we wanted to make it where um, we had complete control of what we were doing so my mindset was we've got to make it a certain size we have to make it this way um, and I think we, we had it down to a pretty good science people asked me well were you aware of the construction costs well Carson having a financial background or or a business background on on building, I pretty much knew what it was going to cost us to build. And, you know, putting barrels away, you know, we've waited. I mean, we waited uh, for our rye whiskey to come out in in a little over two years. And now we're waiting over four years for our bourbon. So people don't do that. You know, they go and they source it. They put it in a bottle. This is my product, you know, same old game everybody plays. But I, I just couldn't do it. I just, I had to, I had to do what I wanted to do and keep it and make it, keep it and hold it and put it out when it's ready to go.
3: Why was that so important to you?
0: Um, Because I'm building a distillery to stay. I'm I'm not building this distillery to sell. We're building it as a family. We're building it for people who work with us and we call them family. So, you know, I'm the fourth generation, Carson's the fifth, he's got boys that'll be the sixth. They don't do that anymore you all know all the distilleries in, in the state of Kentucky you know so there's only one or two owned by the family everybody else is owned by this one that one mm-hmm. we can go all over the world and talk about that but i think in in order to 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 have respect from the big distilleries the big what i call the big 7 and to be have the respect from other distilleries around the united states i had to do it my way and that's make my own product when it's ready it's ready and as luck would have it, that's kind of what's happening to us.
3: So, so talk about how did so you say you want to do it your way and y- your own product? How did you define that or come up with like this is my set of uh, these are my standards? These are
1: my this is my ethos. And don't give us some like oh we source all our corn from you know fifty miles away because no, 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 no. everybody yeah. else's story. You know I think there's there's got to be yeah, something what is, here. What is what it makes
3: when you look at a bottle of Peerless? What do I uh, – what what do you tell people to see in that bottle? Like, what's in it? Well— Not just whiskey. <laughs> I know it's whiskey, you just, you but it's just good whiskey.
0: We, we, we understand everybody makes it the same, run through the same stills. They put it in a barrel. They it's pull it off a still foreign. at 160. They, they uh, put it in a barrel at 125. They water it down. They put it in a bottle at 92 proof. That wasn't, we, we wanted to have complete control over everything that we did. And in order to do that, we had to have the right computer systems, which we, we did, all our, did all our own software. We had to have the right drain operation. We had to find out what would make it the best product. It was in 1964, it changed from, from going in the barrel at 110 proof to 125 proof. So they did that for cost. But going in the barrel at 110 proof actually makes a better product. So I put it in the barrel at 107 proof because it might creep up a little bit. And then I take it straight from the barrel right to the bottle. We don't add one drop of water to it when you take it from the barrel, once it's aged, to the bottle. So the bottles that you see right here are probably 108, 108 108.1, 108.2. We wanted to give it the best flavor profiles we could possibly give it. The other, the, the other main reason why I think that we're making as good a product as we are is we're sweet mash. Everybody's familiar with sour mash. You hold the mash back, you pull it forward. You know that in a way we're a military family. I wanted, I want this place clean. I'm, the joke is, I want it battleship clean. I want that place spotless. When we, cl- when we make a product, we steam clean. We clean everything. You won't see a hose on the ground. You won't see a pressure gauge. Spewing, you won't see any of that. Everything we have is control. We could cook exactly at, one, uh, at a certain temperature. We we ferment exactly at a certain temperature. Everything is controlled, and I think that's the reason why we've received the accolades that we have since we started, and we're going to continue. We're not going to be cocky enough to think that we're doing it exactly right. We're gonna, we're doing it better every day. Everything we do, we're gonna we're gonna buy better equipment, better. Systems to make sure that we're, we're we're on top.
1: What kind of those better systems are you investing in today? Well, we're we're
0: um, we have a continuous still, but there's um, you know there's just ways to make that still run better, run hotter, run faster. So uh, basically, pumps and gauges and things like that that we have just exactly com- complete control over. So. Um, you know, we're, we don't make a lot of product. We only make 10, 12 barrels a day. That's probably all we're ever going to make. I don't have any aspirations of, of building a distillery that's going to be lined up to Jim Beam or Maker's Mark and making a 1,000 barrels a day. We're going to make, you know, we might make 12, 15, 16, 18 barrels a day someday, but not today. Mm-hmm. So we, we just want to have control. If You can have control if you're the size distillery we are today. When you get way up there, you just, you, you're you just making product. And yep. and, and, and don't miss an All bourbon coming out of Kentucky is a good product. We just want to have the best. <laughs>
3: do you think, do you, think uh, you know, the decision to, you know, like you said, stay small, like really focus on quality, do you think you would have made that same decision younger in your life if you were to, like, start the distillery, like, younger and, like, oh, we got to, you know— make this as best big and fast and, and best as possible and turn and burn. Like, like yeah. whereas this is more like of a passion project, I'm sure it's giving you returns, but it seems like more like, you know, this is really...
0: You know, if I'd have stayed down in Henderson, uh, where all my buddies are and where the, some of the big buildings are, and maybe uh, I would have had aspirations of, of building a bigger distillery and coming out of my great-grandfather's buildings or done something, but... You know, coming into Louisville, Kentucky, and wanting to do it in in the city where I could I could benefit from from people taking tours and visiting us. Um, I, I think, and then in the timing on bourbon. Bourbon's only been hot for the last probably eight ten years. I mean, you go back twenty years. I mean, everything was vodka. Yeah. You know, gin was way before that. So vodka was so hot all the flavored vodkas bourbon really hasn't been that strong for the last i'd say 10 years so I know. it's Humper just Bardstown,
3: no one cared about it yeah, yeah well <laughs> now all they now that. All they care about is yeah it. but
0: mm-hmm. they make great stuff in bardstown <laughs> yeah um so um i think that uh you know I, I talk to all the big guys and they say that the bourbon industry will be good for the next 14 to 20 years so that's good to hear because every business has a cycle Mm-hmm. My father was in the had a four dealership and every five years you knew it was going to go down It it's gonna come back. So at least bourbon industry I think will be good for the next
1: fifteen, twenty years. Why do they think that? If you're anything like me, then you can't get enough about bourbon. And that's why I'm a subscriber to Bourbon Plus magazine. Bourbon Plus is a quarterly publication that tells the stories from the heart of bourbon, the farmers who grow the grain the distillers who labor over the process, and the people like you and me who raise their glasses to celebrate it all. Subscribe to Bourbon Plus magazine today at bourbonplus.com, that's P-L-U-S dot com, and use code PURSUIT at checkout for $5 off your subscription. Customers are rushing to your store. Do you have a point-of-sale system you can trust, or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. Shopify POS is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. And with Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Connect with customers in line and online. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. And you can get hardware that fits your business. Take payments by smartphone, transform your tablet into a point-of-sale system, or use Shopify's POS Go mobile device for a battle-tested solution. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash bourbon, all lowercase, and go to shopify.com slash bourbon to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash bourbon.
0: So at least bourbon industry, I think, will be good for the next 15, 20. Years. Why do they think that? Well, I think it's a lot of reasons. I think, I think they feel like that it is because it's it's getting to be a wor- worldwide drink. I mean, the Japanese love it. They even they even in the UK they like it. Australia likes it. Canada's drinking our products. So. But the main reason is I think women like the flavor of bourbon. They, they like it, they're getting away from vodka. And I think, and then I think you've got the mixologist in all the big cities are getting back to mixing the drinks. The Manhattans, you know, are made with, um, they were made originally with rye whiskey. Now they're coming back and making it with rye. So that helps us in the big cities of New York, Chicago, San Francisco, LA. So I think there's a lot of reasons, but I'd say number one would be that women like bourbon; they like the they like the flavor of it, and um, it'll hopefully it'll be a good thing. It's number one drink in the world today.
1: All right. let's keep it number one. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, well, if it's up, you know, keep, obviously keep, we do keep our whiskey. we do our part. <laughs> yeah, keep right yeah. Whiskey, keep keep it going great. So the other kind of question I want to kind of talk about is is the bottling and as well as the price point, right? Because this is something that. Most consumers out there, if they've never heard of it, they might see it on the shelf and they're going to be like, whoa, what's, that's really up there for uh, for two, three-year-old products. So kind of talk about um, the cost of the bottle that goes into it, because I know that you put a, a considerable amount of effort that goes into the shape, the topper, and everything like that, and how that kind of falls into the uh, ending retail price as well.
0: Yeah, it's uh, probably the craziest thing I've ever done, but I'll, <laughs> yeah. I'll explain it to you. <laughs>
1: We're here for what the crazy we,
0: stories. We, yeah. What we – Carson and Chris Edwards and our they designed the bottle. We wanted to have what we thought was one of the best bottles made in the United States. And again, I wanted this bottle to be made in the United States. We found a company down in uh, right outside of Atlanta. They only make perfume bottles. They make our bottle. When you pick it upside down, it says made in the USA. So we wanted to have the right bottle. The cap actually costs more than the bottle. <laughs> so it's we wanted to have the heaviest cap, the heaviest bottle. One, it has a design on it, and then the label. We actually won uh, on December 5th, repeal day in New York City. They have a contest. Who has the best bottle, who has the best label, and who has the best cap in the United States? And last year, we won all three. It's never happened before. So we feel like we have the right. And then to put the product in there, to put a two-year-old product in there and, and, and retail it out for $119 or $120 was a push but we don't make much product. We felt like it was a good product. Evidently, Whiskey Advocate thought it was a pretty good product too, because we were ranked the 15th best whiskey in the world with a two-year-old product, but the number one rye whiskey in the world. On April the 18th of 18, we're ranked the number one rye whiskey in the world. Jack Daniels rye came in second, Whistlepig came in third. So it was a big gamble on our part. We'd have won the accolades, uh, January the 30th, Jayme and I went to New York City, um, and, and Whiskey Magazine uh, gave us the award for the number one craft distillery in the United States out of 900. Caleb Kilburn, our distiller, master distiller, just got back from London. March, he went there March 28th. We got the, we won the uh, the number one craft distillery in the world. So we must be doing something <laughs> right. We are getting, but now. We do have different price points, so a lot of our rye will be more in the $89. Our bourbon will come out about $69. It's still a high-end, but we don't make much.
1: Well, oddly enough, I don't know if people know that, that rye whiskey actually is more expensive to yeah. to mash and to create than it is to actually make a bourbon whiskey. So kind of talk about— comes up the tanks, got <laughs> clean all that funk. Yeah, it mm-hmm. does. And
0: rye, in rye yeah. is, you know, it's $13, $13, $14 a bushel, and corn's— $3.68. So, you know, it just costs a lot more money to make.
1: Yeah. But why is it that that rye seems to age a lot quicker and have a, a, a better approachable taste to it at a younger age than, say, a bourbon does? What, what what really think you accounts for that?
0: You know, I that's probably a question more for Caleb than it is for me. I, I don't know why it, why it ages that much faster, but it's twice as fast. I mean, so... To have, it's fine. No, no, we're, no, we're going to have, we, we have a three-year-old out. We're going to have a four-year-old out probably in the next three or four months. So on a go-forward basis, we won't be a two-year-old rye. All of our rye will be four, four to seven years old. And then we'll come out with a Henry Craver, eight-year-old. So it'll be hitting on a four-year-old here probably in the next three or four months. So we'll be strictly over four, four to
1: five-year-old rye. What's this Henry Craver thing you just brought up that, that kind of piqued my interest there? Talk about that.
0: Well, we're gonna in honor of my great grandfather. We're holding about 20% of what we make uh, for a Henry Craver uh, bourbon. So we'll have a we'll, we'll always have the peerless product out, but we're gonna have a, a Henry Craver eight-year-old product and probably an eight-year-old rye whiskey as well. We'll hold a little bit for him uh, for an eight-year-old rye. So we're. Uh, it's more in honor of my great grandfather. It's all about our family our heritage, what we're trying to accomplish here as a family. Um, but I think our eight-year-old bourbon should do well for us. Yeah,
1: because yeah. that was always one of the things that I remember. I remember when this, when the two-year-old rye first came out, and you know, it came out with a $100 price tag. And I know people were talking, they're like, oh, man, like how can they do $100 on a two-year rye whiskey? And I think one of the big things that was the question that always came up was, well, when the rye is three years and it's four years and it's five years, so on and so on, like, is the price going to keep going up? Is it going to go down? Is it going to stay the same? Like, what's what's your the, the long-term game there?
0: Well, I'll tell you what the short-term game was before sure, I get we'll on take the long. long. we'll okay, take the short-term. Okay, let's term. go to the short-term. The short-term, if I'd have asked $39.95 a bottle, I'd have just been everybody else. I'd have been Jim Beam, Maker's Mark. You know, we'd have just been – we'd have gotten lost in the shuffle. So – in order to get everybody's attention, which I think we did, we, we're getting $129, which everybody went, holy cow, I've got to try that. Yeah. My God, I mean, $129 for a two-year-old bottle? Let's try it. And it just so happened it tastes good. Mm-hmm. So was it a gamble? you damn right it was a gamble, <laughs> by God. But, you know, as it turns out, the way that it's come down the pike, we, we do realize we've got to get to a four-year-old. Um, then you don't have to put an age statement on the bottle once it's four years old. So it'll be five, six years old, and I think it'll be get it'll get better every year. Our three-year-old is better than the two-year-old, but it's it's hard to say. I mean, if you're number one in the world at a two-year-old, what <laughs> so, the hell? I where mean, do
1: you go from there? Where do you, you know, where do you you know what, how much? <laughs> Close up shop. Let's start off yeah, something well, new. Well, We're well, done. But, but no, we we
0: know we want to make things better all the time. We want to do a better job. We want to be proud of the product we put out and we want to be more cost effective. It, it was, <laughs> it was a big deal to come out over a hundred dollars with a two-year-old, but it got people's attention. We would have never, ever gotten the acc- accolades that we got if we hadn't asked
1: $129 red that bottle. Who was, who was the biggest like advocate and then like The person that was against it, like with inside of the family or inside of the company that was like, all right, this is the price point we're going with. And then somebody was like, I don't know about that. Or you just Mm kind of like headstrong with it, saying we got to do this.
0: You know, I don't I think everybody pretty much agreed. I mean, that uh, we don't make much product. I'll make it real simple. We go where the money is. The money's in New York City. The money's in Chicago. The money's in San Francisco, L.A., Houston, Dallas, Atlanta, Miami. So, London. So, if you only make 10-12 barrels of, of bourbon a day, you, don't, don't, take
3: we, you, you don't, don't take it to Henderson. You don't take it to Henderson County. <laughs> we we
0: got it in Henderson, but only about three places. Yeah, exactly. You know, you don't we're not going to go down to Bardstown and put it in the bar down at Bardstown, you know.
3: Oh, so, they'll they'll bitch like I mean oh, they I mean, that, they it, can't even pay for a $40 bottle. Yeah. That,
0: like, so so I mean, you know, if you if you if you have the history that we have, and we go to the places where the money is, it, and they like it, they have to like it, then we're taking a gamble, but knock on wood, it's 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 going to work.
1: Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. And, and I think it seemed to work so far. It's, the doors yeah. are open. The money's still coming in. You got product in, what did you say, 48? 40, how many states? 45, 45, 45, 45 states. Oh, 45 states across the country. And so that was kind of like the, one of the big reasons we kind of want to talk to you is because, yeah, you're starting to get this, this national presence around you. And I kind of want to also talk about like, so what are the difference in the, the two bottles we have in front of us today? You have the, the two-year small batch and you have a, we have a three-year, three-year single barrel, is that
0: what it is? Exactly, and it's, it's a three-year single barrel. And we, we've, I, I don't know, of course, all the distilleries have a reputation of selling single barrels, but for the size that we are, I think it's kind of hit pretty good for us to where we are selling quite a few single barrels. I mean, last year we I think we sold over fifty, which was big for us. And this year we anticipating selling well over a hundred. And for a small distillery, that's that's a good thing. And that's how it helps marketing when you're yeah. It's almost so, like a month's It's
1: almost like a month worth of inventory at this point. Yeah. You know? Well. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. But uh, you know, so you, you get in some of the big bars and you get in some of the big liquor stores in the country, and they've got. 30 cases of your product in the center aisle, you know, they see it. And so it, it, it's going to help us with that as well.
3: Mm-hmm. So. What's the match bill on this, these rye, these rye whiskeys?
0: We don't, we don't, I, I can't tell you.
3: Ah, uh, that's Wait. why it's so good. <laughs> <laughs>
0: that's the secret. So everybody asks that and I, you know, it just, we just, we don't why, disclose. Why do you do them. that? Because everybody else disclose, <laughs> disclose theirs. We're not going to disclose ours. How do you like
3: it? I love it. I mean, that's, <laughs> I, it's, it's great for Two-year or three? This is a two or three. That's the two-year old. No, they're both three. Okay, cool. This is well, the Oh, they're both three, yeah. All right. Well, they're um, both three. No, both. I mean— Both great. So I mean, to me, it this. tastes it tastes like a Kentucky rye, like more of a lower rye, like a closer to 51% rye, but I'm not going to prod you to give us that. <laughs> give us, but, but, uh, <laughs> give us
1: the, Drink the rest of it, and I'll yeah, get you right. some of this three.
0: No, but I, I will say— <laughs> You know, and w- a little bit about what you said about the mash bill. No matter where we go in the country, they basically call it a bourbon drinker's rye whiskey. Yeah. So we do have enough corn in there that it gives it a little bit sweeter sweeter taste. And I don't think you quite get that burn that you would um, with a different rye. And then we have the three different profiles. We only blend six barrels. Three different I was about to ask that. Profiles. What's a small batch so, in
3: your uh, definition?
0: Six barrels. Yeah. So we take, try to take three different flavor profiles, um, fruits and florals, caramel and vanilla, and then the, and obviously the, the oak and pepper is the original rice. So we, if we blend those and we do it, you know, we pick our barrels. So if we can continue doing that, if it's not ready, it's not ready. We put it back for another three months, six months or whatever. So we wanna make sure that the barrels that we put out, again, being small, we can do that. Obviously, we're not going to blend 500 like the big oh. ones do it. And the other thing that's really important to, to, to try to stay um, what we feel like will be a quality product is all of our rickhouses are just going to be one floor, five high. So the temperature from the top to the bottom is about four degrees. Mm-hmm. you go in these big warehouses, could be 40 degrees temperature from the top floor to the bottom floor so we like the idea one floor more control better product so the things that we do on a continuous basis we hope will be a better product for us
3: where did you so when you're developing you know corky's thing your own way who's the whose recipes are these or like was it just trial and error or like we're leaning on someone else to
1: like figure it out or
0: you got it trial and error. Yeah. We we, we spent,
1: you know, a year it's trying fun. to that's figure fun, out that's the fun re- part yeah, you of know, research. We knew, yeah.
0: you know, kind of what we wanted to do with the flavor profiles. We had a pretty good idea with some other products close to what you know what with, with their mash bill. So we just came up with a mash bill that, that that had enough corn in it that people would still think it's a good quality bourbon. And a lot of people that drink this still think it's bourbon. <laughs>
3: it, I mean, it, it doesn't pulled, me. t- I mean, you can taste the rye, but it. It, it, it's very close. Like you said, it's a bourbon drinker's bourbon. It's like yeah, a, or not a bourbon drinker's bourbon. Bourbon drinker's rye. We'll get right that, there. Uh, we'll get there. Yeah. Um, so talk about like what uh, what are some of your favorite products that kind of like made you determine that this is what I like? You know, some similar or there's similar products out there that were like this is kind of well, whistle whistle pig. Yeah, when
0: when we when we looked at it, we, we, we knew who, who our competition was going to be. And it seems like since we came out, Whistle Pig, no matter where you go, is going is to be our competition. Um, so, you know, but but theirs is 8, 10, 12, 14 years. Right. So, and, you know, so we we had pretty good idea that that's, that's our competition, but we wanted to make it our fla- flavor profiles. So... Um, we couldn't sit around and wait 14 years, you know? mm-hmm. so we had to figure out what what we could do. And uh, Caleb Kilburn is a is our master distiller. He's been with us since day one, and um, he does a great job for us. But um, we got Chris and Tommy in there, and Carson, so we're we're kind of all on it, trying to figure out, you know, what we can do to make it better. And obviously going from the two year to the three years better. And when you come out with a four year, it's gonna be better and five year and then kind of hold it about there. I don't think Rye needs to be, Whistle Pig does a great job. They've got a great product, but I, we're, we're not going to be up there 12, 14 years. Yeah, we're just not.
1: Well, who knows? Of that, of that twenty percent you're holding back, save another two percent, and then you know you'll, you'll find out later on.
0: <laughs> save it for eight years. Yeah, so. exactly. You <laughs> yeah. Try to get that money. That's gonna yeah. be tough. Sell, yeah. sell, sell. So,
1: now, the other part I'll, about the the flavoring aspect, or not flavoring, but you know how you how you embody and invoke the flavor of of the whiskey is all done a lot through the barrel itself. It is. And are who who are you teaming up? with to to get your barrels or is this another uh, i'm not going to tell you no sort of no scenario? no 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 it's
0: uh we, we we strictly do business with kelvin Cooperage. we like the quality of their barrels that they make personally we like them they're, they're they become good friends of ours uh they you know when we got in this business barrels were hard to come by there was a barrel shortage so we went to some of the big barrel places and they'd say well you know we can help you with four or five hundred barrels, we can't give you twelve hundred or we you know we can do this or you know and and we went to Kelvin and and talked to them and they said we'll take care of you and I'll be with Kelvin Cooperage as long as they're I'll I'll always be with them.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: I, I'm not gonna I won't I won't leave.
3: <laughs> I won't leave. It's amazing <laughs> oh. how rich these
1: barrels are. Mm-hmm. I mean for the three
3: year old product. I mean absolutely. it's crazy. I mean talk about how did you get hooked up with Caleb and why did you choose him to be your master distiller?
0: Well, there's, there's Flavor Man. The epicenter has a school that, that it only lasts about six days, but it, it, it helps you, gives you an idea how to become a distiller or to build a distillery. Caleb went through the school. My son Carson went through the first class. I think Caleb was in the second. I sent Mike. So we've had a number of them go through the school. And then they said, um, Somebody said you ought to take a look at this young man. He's still a junior in college, so he came over and talked to me. He said, you know, I'd like to, you know, work with you. And this is even before we laid out the distillery. And I said, sure. You know, once you start shoveling gravel over there, and oh by the way, I got a bunch of nails in this wood, <laughs> pull nails. And he did that for the first summer he was there. Second summer, I think he, he, shoveled gravel and helped us pour concrete. So. And then he was able to lay out the distillery the way he wanted it laid out. Uh, the kid, I say he's a kid, he's not a kid, but he's, he's, he's literally a genius, I think. He's, he's very, very smart. He understands the mechanical, uh, he understands the whole system all the way around. He's gone into big distilleries, he's followed them around, he went to the school, he's sharp. Mm-hmm. And he does a great job for us. He's helped work with Tommy and and uh, Nick Clee and and, and help them along. So we have three people that can really do what we want to in there. But Caleb is the he's the lead lead pony there. So
1: is he like another son to you? Part he of the is. family? He
0: really is. Yeah, no, he is. And you know, and I feel like a lot of them in there. they you know we're, we're basically a big family. We don't, we only have about 20 employees. Maybe we got a few part time that are you know, work in the, in the retail part of it. But, you know, we're most will have as 22 employees in there. So we're always gonna be a, that size distillery. Mm-hmm.
1: So before we kind of wrap things up, I know that I kind of want to touch back on the, the history of you and your military background, because I know there was, you have a, a tie to, to General Patton as well, is that correct?
0: My, my father was General Patton's chief aide. Mm-hmm. So if you saw the movie Patton, the man that w- was right with General Patton in real life was my father. I've got General Patton's gun that he carried all through the war. If you saw the movie Patton, he said pearls were for women and ivories for men. I've got the gun, the ivory handle 45, that was his shoulder harness. So uh, my father owned it for 30 years. He passed away young of a heart attack. I've owned this gun for 43 years. My sons will own it. My grandsons, they'll own it. So the gun that General Patton carried all through the war will never leave the Taylor family.
1: Very and cool. then and then, so you also have like I, I mentioned that that military tie um when when military officers or, or personnel come through the distillery, I think you've had a few of those kind of moments as well with uh, with some of those individuals have you not?
0: oh, yeah, they do because if you go down to the Patton museum down in uh, fort Knox, there's There's a picture, about a 10 foot tall picture of General Patton, that's my father standing right next to him. So all the army generals, McCaffrey just just retired, two-star general, he wanted to have his retirement dinner at our distillery. He brought eight of the top army generals in the United States Army were in our distillery that night, so he wants us to bring the gun in so people can see the, the 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 generals in the army and the colonels. If there's a general or a colonel down at Fort Knox or somebody visiting from Leavenworth or from other places, they come see me and they 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 want to know the history about my father, and um, which is which is a pretty interesting yeah, that's history. Pretty cool. I mean. Uh, the story that everybody likes to hear is when I, when my father sent me to military school down at Castle Heights, and my two roommates were the Almond Brothers. So, Greg and Dwayne were my roommates down at down at military school, and it was a wild damn time. I'll tell you that. Oh, sure. So, we had every
3: time I've listened to Almond Brothers, yeah. it's a <laughs> wild time.
0: <laughs> yeah. So, we, uh, we, uh, and uh, that, that's, to back up just a little bit, you mentioned Freddie, no? Yeah. Well, Freddie and I spoke at the convention center one time, and and uh, Freddie's father, Booker, sent him to Castle Heights, kind of straightened his rear end. Out. My dad sent me to Castle Heights, straight in my rear well, end. Out. It didn't so
3: work for Fred. It didn't work for me either. <laughs> so
0: so Freddie, for all these years, he said, you know, the Almond Brothers went to Castle Heights. So I'm 70 years old, Freddie's probably 62. So he'd been telling these people hmm. that the Almond brothers went to Castle Heights. So we're speaking here at the convention center. I said, Freddie, you didn't know this, but I went to Castle Light. So You can imagine what he said. Yeah. He has no muffler, you know. <laughs> so I his, a few and, I, and I said, no. Oh, by the way, the Almond brothers were were my roommates. Well, he he busted a gut on that one. He said, my God. I said, but Freddie you never saw the Allman Brothers. I'm 70, you're like 62. They weren't there. He said, no, they weren't there, by God, but I knew they were there. I said, I know they were, too. They were my roommates. <laughs> so we laughed about that. And so um, I, when, he, when he does see me, so I know you're the Allman Brothers roommate.
1: That's pretty awesome. That is yeah. cool. They didn't initially try to get you to pick up a, another guitar and start playing with them or anything? You know, that was, that was when they were—
0: 14, 15 years old. They were they were young. Know, they had a guitar in the room, mm-hmm. but they never yeah. I mean they might on Sunday afternoon they play the guitar, you'd sing, but I mean well, I didn't know what the hell was going on, you know.
3: They weren't writing Jessica there. No, they you know no, they weren't they, and, weren't. they and, weren't they were Man.
0: <laughs> yeah. So we we uh we, we got in a little trouble. We, we we found out the first day we were there that the girls were at the Dairy Queen on Sunday night. So we come busting out of there for to the Dairy Queen Sunday night, mm-hmm. come back at one. Captain's always standing there raising that like we cared. We wanted to get kicked out of this yeah, place. exactly. So we, like, we, please send me home. <laughs> we stayed in, we stayed in trouble. Yeah. <laughs> give
1: me, give me another one of those good stories. So I mean, you went, uh, went to go to the Dairy Queen. What other things you try to do to get in trouble there?
0: Oh, we, we made a little. Uh, we did make some uh, wine in there, so we get drunk every once in a while. But I think, <laughs> I think the Dairy Queen was
1: that's awesome.
0: That was that was the wildest. So, I, I was, so we had no money. We'd go to the Dairy Queen. I mean, we'd go to the Dairy Queen, we'd end up there at one o'clock. We, hadn't, we couldn't even buy a Coke. We were so. What's going broke.
3: on at the Dairy Queen? More than Blizzard. <laughs> yeah, we, we,
0: well, but then and then I figured out, I said, hey, now here's how we're going to make money. We're going to go down to the drugstore. We're going to buy a little vial of cinnamon. We're going to go in the cafeteria, soak these toothpicks, and sell them to all the rich boys for 10 cents a piece. So, we told, so 10 in breakfast, 10 in lunch, 10 at dinner. That's $3 a day. 20, $21 when we got on. Sunday. we have a lot more fun at the Dairy Queen. Hold on,
1: why, would, why do people want cinnamon sticks?
0: Oh, they loved them. All the rich boys, well, they had rich boys down there, man. They had Al Gore went to school. He was one of our roommates for a short period of time. So heck, they just, they'd walk around with these cinnamon toothpicks in their mouth. They loved them. We, that guy had ever had all the money boys sucking on those toothpicks.
1: <laughs> and then- I didn't know that was a thing. Yeah, yeah.
0: So then I was, when they got ready to, Allman Brothers wrote a book. Then they they wrote about that in their book how I came mm-hmm. up with a cinnamon the toothpick.
1: Cinnamon toothpick, that's that's pretty cool. <laughs> I know it's the next big marketing ploy right there. Yeah, it's
0: oh
3: yeah,
1: we the, had, on we had a good time. Yeah, when you leave Peerless, get yourself a bottle of whiskey and a, a cinnamon toothpick. Yeah, that's the way you should do it. <laughs> so, Corky, I want to say thank you so much for for joining us today on thank this you. podcast. This is a pleasure to not only get to know you and your story, but also more about the product and and now that people are gonna know more about it they're gonna be probably more inclined to go out there and try it too so next time you are at your liquor store or your local package store at a bar wherever it is give it a try i mean I, I i'm gonna say that i was i'm a believer now because i i have tried peerless over the past uh two years plus now and the first time i tried it i was i was pretty pretty taken away because i was you know this is again a year plus ago about being a two-year product, I was like, oh, "This is actually yeah. pretty fantastic." And now, if you can, I remember it was my you,
3: birthday. we were sitting at the bar, and they gave us samples, and I was like, "All right, let's see. Is yeah. it really full of shit, or is this really good?" good. Yeah. Uh, and then we took it, and I was like, "Damn it, it is good." Uh-huh. You know, you're like, uh-huh. and then, but now, I mean, gosh, what we're tasting today is like even better. It you know, really it's amazing is. what a year has done to this. Like, gosh, especially that single barrel. I mean, it's like, I mean, it tastes like a eight to ten year old. Like. I mean, the richness and complexity and I mean, it's... I don't know what you're doing, but... He told yeah, us. I mean, he won't tell us. He but, won't tell us. <laughs> other, other than going at no. a lower proof, you know? Yeah. Other than that.
0: <laughs> no, we just want people to come down and see yeah. our place and, and see how we make
3: making. And it is a cool place. I mean, like, it's amazing because when Kenny and I, we were on my birthday, a friend of mine set up a Heaven Hill tour of the Shavley plant. You go there and they got, you know, I mean, obviously it's a factory over there. Yeah. And then you go to your place and it's great to come see, like, a craft distillery where it's like... It's like you feel like it is truly handmade and, like, everything's, you know, legit about, like, it's it's a cool uh, building and everything about it's, like, I don't know. It's refreshing, I guess. <laughs> Yeah, you know, Where are you going, you going with this, right? Well, I'm just saying it's, <laughs> I don't know. It's just a nice change of pace from all the other distilleries you go to. Thank Absolutely. You. Yeah. So, uh,
1: before we kind of kick it off here, uh, give a shout out to people of, of where they can find out more about you, where can they locate the distillery, so on and so forth.
0: Well, we're, we're down on 120 North 10th Street, right past the baseball bat factory. Louisville Slugger with a big baseball. Go another block, take a right towards the river. We're right down the street there. Uh, we have tours from uh, starting Monday through Saturday from 10 to 5. Uh, we stay open late in the summer till 7 on Thursday and Friday night. Uh, but you can get our product in most all the liquor stores, especially in Kentucky. But you know the big liquor stores and even the smaller ones. And we're getting wider spread in a lot of the restaurants and bars. And and uh, so we're you know it just takes time. You build a brand. It you know it's taken us. It's going to take us a while to build a brand. So we know that. But we're pretty accessible. You know in the liquor stores, especially in Kentucky, and we well all over. We're in 45 states, and we're you know like. Total wines and the ABCs and the Bevmos and a lot of the specs and some of the big, bigger change in the in the big states where we are. But you know, we're in we're in a lot of liquor stores here in the state of Kentucky, and they and they support us very well, and we're we're very appreciative. We know where we're from. We're from Kentucky, <laughs>
1: so we're <laughs> got to play in your own background. You're darn right, bit. you yeah, do. I mean, right.
0: we're you know we're honored to be here, and we're we're tickled to death to, to have people drink our product.
3: We got Corky. I mean. I, I appreciate the, I love the history, the bottle, everything about it. I mean, this is, you know, it's, it's cool seeing stuff that's being made in Louisville that's not just from, like you said, the Big Seven and seeing the success that you guys had. It's really exciting and, uh, I'm excited for, you know, what's to come. And I appreciate you taking the time to oh. hang out in our uh,
1: little nook here yeah, in Down One
3: Bourbon Bar. Absolutely. And, uh,
1: and so thank you once again to Down One Bourbon Bar for inviting us here, having us here. We're just a few blocks away from Peerless Distilling Company. So if you're coming down to visit Peerless and as well as a lot of the other uh, Louisville bourbon excursions, make sure you stop at Down One, get yourself a drink and uh, move on to the next place. With that, we'll see everybody next week.